And coming up to bat was a guy who would make history in the major leagues before it was all said and done. He was the power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. His name was Hank Aaron. And as was his custom, Yogi Berra started the process of that at-bat for Hank Aaron by talking smack. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was always chattering. You, as a matter of fact, this morning, somebody in our church told me about a guy who was, uh, I think, from Jasper or somewhere around here, played Major League Baseball, and Yogi Berra got his teeth into him, his first Major League at-bat. But this particular point, Yogi Berra was chattering and trying to talk up his teammates and at the same time uh, to kind of get in the head of the batter. In this case, uh, he underestimated who he was dealing with. And as Hank Aaron took a couple of pitches, Yogi Berra was talking to him and chewing on him. And uh, at one point, he settled on this approach. He said, Hank, uh, I know you're a hitter and all that stuff, but uh, you're holding your bat wrong. And uh, Hank never, no eye contact, no connection like he wasn't even hearing what he said. And that didn't deter Yogi Berra at all. He kept talking, hey, you're holding your bat wrong. That, that print that's on there, uh, you know, that's supposed to be away from the ball. And you're, you're, you got it at the wrong angle and you're going to swing. And if you hit it at all, then it's going to break your bat and you're not going to get on base. Hank Aaron never said a word to him. Yogi Bear kept chewing on him. You're holding your bat wrong, man. You're holding your look. If you can read that while you're batting, you're going to break your bat. The next pitch after that exchange, Hank Aaron took a swing and put it in the left field bleachers. He just smoked it over the fence. And so as he came around the bases and he got coming back to home plate, Yogi Bear was standing there just looking at him. He wasn't saying much now. And as he crossed the plate, Hank Aaron turned and he looked at Yogi Bear and he said, I didn't come up here to read. And that illustrates for us a key point of living, and especially living the Christian life, and by extension to us as a church. We have to know what we're here for. And we have to remain true to our purpose. Because there are all kinds of voices out there, some of them even well-intentioned voices that would say to us as a church in this community, oh, you need to be about blank. And then you can fill in the blank with any number of other things that churches get tied up with. And ultimately it comes back to us as God's people in this place at this time, we have to remember what our purpose is. Because of that, and some other reasons tied to it, last week I started what will be a fairly regular occurrence as we go on through the years, however long uh, you or the Lord let me stay here. Uh, from time to time, we're going to put a pause on everything else that we're preaching, whatever the time is, and we're going to come back to rehearse our purpose. Because it's so easy for us to get off topic and off purpose. So what is our purpose. Last week we started with the first one. These, by the way, are taken from our Constitution. Now, in the past year, uh, we as a church have gone through the process of kind of reviewing documents and coming back. And back in, I believe it was February or so, we approved a Constitution as a church. It's what we operate under now. And in that Constitution, there's a statement that says, we quote our purpose to be. And then there are five different statements there. Last week we looked at the first one, which is exalting the Savior. Today we come to the second one, which is equipping the saints. I think we have that for you. We quote our purpose to be the study of Christian principles and the practice of the Christian life as revealed and taught in the New Testament. Now one more time, we quote our purpose to be, this is number two, the study of Christian principles 
Let me interrupt and say I think a lot of churches give themselves to that pretty easily. Oh, the second part of it, though, that's quite the other story. And the practice of the Christian life as revealed and taught in the New Testament. We shorten that so that we can remember it better. And we use another E like we started the first one with exalting the Savior. This one now is called equipping the saints. Take your Bibles and go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we're not going to be there immediately. We will get there before too long. But as we come to this, we recognize something about who we are. Knowing our purpose helps us to be effective in what we do, but just knowing our purpose doesn't necessarily ensure that we fulfill it. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into me. If you're wondering why you show up for the preaching part of this service, uh, let me give you a little help, okay? Every once in a while, I'll say something that gets me in a lot of trouble. Now, that in itself ought to make you want to come. Everybody loves a train wreck, so you want to come by, you can come watch sometime because I'm bound to say something that's going to cause trouble for me before it's over with. Case in point, a number of years ago, down in Edinburgh, by the way, we have some friends of ours are from Edinburgh are here today, the Esau family over here. Uh, Jonathan is chairman of the deacons there, and Annabelle, his wife, and their two kids, uh, two of their kids, and uh, so... Great friends of ours, love them to death. We're glad that you're here. And uh, sorry, there's no lunch, but um, <clears throat> not so. You know I'm not going to miss lunch, don't you? Well, anyway, the church where Jonathan is chairman of the deacons, uh, we had I had served as youth minister there, and our previous music minister called me when I became the pastor, and he said, "Hey, uh, I'm at such and such a church here in Texas, and uh, we have a senior adult choir." And our senior adult choir is going to go on tour, and uh, we're looking for places where they can sing. And I said, lots of luck. I'll pray for you. And he knew me well enough to know that I was just yanking his chain. And he said, so what do you think? And we talked about how the service would go. And I said, why don't you just take the whole service? And he said, no, we don't want the whole service. We'll just sing a few songs, and then you can preach. And uh, we'll go there. I said, okay, let's do that. So on this particular Sunday, that choir came in, and they led us in worship service, pretty much a traditional uh, kind of a worship service approach. Uh, they did a few special music things, and then it was my turn to preach, and I got up. It happened to be senior, senior adult Sunday uh, across the Baptist world uh, at that time. And so I built a message kind of on this basic question. I asked the question, and man, did I get into trouble. Here's the question. Senior, visiting senior adult choir behind me, and emphasizing senior adults in front of me, and I asked this question. Are you mature, or are you just old? I don't know why I got in trouble with that, but I got in trouble with that. And I mean, I had to deprogram people all week long to try to help them understand where I was going. They didn't hear anything that came after that, because they just thought I was taking a shot at old people. Hey, I get that. I'm old now. I kind of under, we're a little bit touchy about that sometimes. But I'm going to throw the question at you, okay? Are you old or mature? I think it's a fair question. And especially it's a fair question as we're talking about spiritual maturity. You see, some people in churches operate under the opinion that if they have tenure, they're automatically mature. You understand what I mean by that? 
Some people think that because they've been Christians for decades, then they automatically have arrived in the Christian life. If that happens to be how you feel today, and as kindly as I possibly can, I want to tell you, you're crazy. That's just not true. Just because you made a decision for Christ at some point in your past does not guarantee that you have followed in the way that you need to have follow or need to follow when it comes to maturing, spiritually speaking. There's a difference between just being an old Christian and being a mature Christian. Now, because I didn't get in enough trouble to learn that lesson, let me throw another one out today, all right? This one's fresh, so I'll just get in trouble all new with this one. It's along the same lines. Are you spiritually mature or are you educated? Here's where I'm coming from with this one. There, there, well, let me ask it this way. You ever known anybody who was a know-it-all? Now, I gotta tell you, these are the people that I have the most fun with in life. Because you can yank their chain and they don't even know you're yanking it. I have a nephew. He is a know-it-all. All right? He's the kind of guy, when he was in the fourth, fifth grade, let's see, I need to be careful how I say this. Uh, I never did slap him, but I wanted to slap him sometimes. I'm, you, know, you know the kind of kid I'm talking about? I, I was having a discussion one time. Now, I, I should tell you, he graduated valedictorian of his class in high school, got a full-ride full scholarship to Kansas State University. Well, anybody can get into that school, so that's not that big a deal. But uh, I, I know he's going to listen to this. That's why I said that, just for his sake and his sister's. Um, but anyway, Eric... Um, you know, he, he showed a little bit of promise as a young man, okay? Got through school, graduated way up high in his class, got a great job working in downtown Houston. And, you know, uh, he, he's just annoying, that kind of smart guy. You know what I'm talking about? Well, when he was a kid, I was having a discussion with my brother one time, and we were talking about something, uh, and something in the process of the conversation. I said something about a particular animal. Eric was not even in the conversation. He was off to the side, and he immediately chimes in. Oh, well, do you know that's from the, you know, what? He gives me this scientific garbage about what, you know, class and system, and I don't even know all that stuff, okay? By the way, if you're studying that in school this year, you'll forget it, and it won't bother you a bit. Um, so Eric gives me all this, and that, that animal eats such and such. I don't care. You weren't even part of this conversation. Smack. That's what I thought in my mind. Okay. You know the kind of person I'm talking about? <laughs> I found out that Eric, in his free time, would sit around and read the encyclopedia. Oh, my goodness. I bought him a TV just to give him a life. No, I didn't. Now, take that kind of scenario and plug it into church life. You know the, the know-it-all kind of Christian who has every answer to every question you'd never ask in church? One of the things that passes for spiritual maturity in the modern age, technically the postmodern age, in our churches of this day, we elevate people who have a lot of knowledge and Give them the title of being spiritually mature. 
problem with that is, theologically speaking, it won't drill. Just because you're gifted in intelligence, and by the way, if you're smart out here, you didn't build that yourself. God gives intelligence. Okay? Now, what you do with it is important. But God's the one who gives that particular gift out, I think. And that's just, you know, that's just, it's not because you have it. It's because God gave it to you. And I'm comfortable with that. All right? But what happens in our churches is we take people like that and we hold them up and say, oh, because you can quote 18 different chapters of the Bible, you are more spiritually mature than the next guy. That may not necessarily follow. Those are dots which might not connect ultimately. We live in an age where information is incredibly accessible to us. What used to require an individual going to some souped-up university somewhere, sitting at the feet of some souped-up scholar somewhere, and spending his life studying a particular topic and reading books that were only in that particular library, and the only place he could get them was there, what used to be that, now you can Google and get that information that they had. But just having the information doesn't make you or me spiritually mature. We live in a society that is Christianized in many different aspects. And you can flip on the radio and never listen to a secular radio station if you want to. You can know all the words to all of the songs that are on the radio, even the ones you don't like. And that doesn't make you spiritually mature. It just makes you knowledgeable. There's all the difference in the world between those two. We have in our world today Christians who gorge themselves on Christian stuff. And some of us see that and we elevate them and say, well, they're the ones who are more spiritual than anybody else. In New Testament times, they called those people Pharisees and scribes. Well, maybe not all of them. Let me put it down on this level to make sure we all get it. Just because you can discuss the finer points of infralapsarianism doesn't mean that you got it going on. So if I'm going to take these kind of shots this early in a sermon, maybe I ought to let you uh, in on the standard that we're using to measure spiritual maturity. That's probably where I really ought to start is where some of you may be at this point, which is, why are you making such a big deal out of this anyway, preacher? Have a bad week or what? Ephesians chapter 4. We find here Paul as he writes to the church. The church that is at Ephesus, by the way. I've been there to that location. And what we found there was the remains, the bones, if you will, of a civilization and a society that the Christian church was implanted into and it made an incredible impact on that community, a pagan thing to be exact. Paul writes to that group of Christians at that particular place and he's trying to help them flesh out what the Christian life looks like in the midst of a pagan society. Hello, American Christianity, we should get this. And in this, Paul begins to lay out some of the structural stuff and how they're to handle what they're charged with doing. And with that in mind, we come to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is where Paul says, verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, I'm going to interrupt for a second. And from this point forward, I want you to listen with an ear towards why did he give them. He's just laid out this group of leaders in a local church. And now he says, and here's why you have those people. Verse, thir- uh, verse 12. Let me just go back. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Here it is. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You want to know what my job is? That's my primary job right there by Scripture. I know that's, well, that's a whole other series of sermons. I'll, I'll save it. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, here we go. For the building up of the body of Christ. That's not a numerical build. That's a quality build. To beef up the body, if you will. Y'all can tell by looking at me, I'm lifting weights. Can you tell? Look at those guns, huh? You should have seen me before I started lifting weights. When you break down a muscle on a weight bench, and you continue to do that over a period of time, you break it down and it rebuilds, but it builds stronger. That's the picture here. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And here's another one of those goal statements. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Here it is. To mature manhood. To the, in case you don't know what that means, he explains that. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now hang on just a second. Did you catch what Paul said is the goal? So that you and I might be at the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. To the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me just interrupt it all and say it this way. Uh, Wow. What Paul is saying here is that the goal for you and me in our Christianity is to be like Jesus was. Oh, wow. I've read a lot of books. I've written papers on a lot of those books. I'd rather read a book and write a paper than have to live up to that. But you see, I don't get that choice, and neither do you. The reason that God puts key leaders in a church is so that the church, that's you and me in the church, might be like Christ. Not a little bit like Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's go to the next verse now. So that we may no longer be children. Stop there for a second. Now we like the toss to and fro part of it, but let's get this picture. So that we may no longer be children. You know what that means? Immature. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and and deceitful schemes. And here it is. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The standard expectation of a Christian person is to be like Jesus. So how are you doing with that? I'm back to our purpose for just a second. You don't need to worry about putting it up there, but just this idea of equipping the saints. That's what we're to be about as a people. Okay? 
as a church here, one of our primary points of purpose. And if we get off on this, whatever else happens, we're not going to be fulfilling what Scripture calls us to fulfill, and that is we are to equip people. For what? And the answer is for life. You realize that you and I are put together fearfully and wonderfully made by our Creator. Father God who loves us enough that he sent Jesus Christ, and when Jesus was crucified, resurrected, ascended back to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit so we don't have to do this by ourselves. And that same God put you and me together on a physical level, on a relational level, on an emotional level. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I get the emotional part of it all the time. And a psychological level. And a sociological level. All of these parts of our lives come together. And it's not that God only deals with the spiritual. He deals with all of us. The whole piece. So when a church is charged with equipping people for life, every part of us needs to be addressed in that. Because every part of us has to grow up into the measure of the fullness of God, of Christ. What we find in Ephesians, Ephesians 4 to be exact, is that spiritual maturity, and let me kind of back off of that for a second and kind of reframe that for you, because I don't think spiritual maturity is a destination where you can get there and turn around and look and go, wow, look at how far I came. It is a maturing process. And so today, you should be a little further along than you were yesterday. Maybe a good point for me, I started to begin the whole sermon this way, is just to ask you straight up, are you further along in your walk with Christ today than you were a year ago? Or ten years ago? You see, here's what happens. In 21st century American Christianity, we, I think, have adopted a watered-down, much more palatable, we like it better, it tastes better on our lips approach to the Christian life. Dallas Willard, I have incredible respect for much of what he writes. And here's one of the things that he says. Some of you heard this before because I used it on Sunday nights when we were talking through some of these things. Here's a quote from Dallas Willard. I love the term vampire Christians. You've got to love that before you even know what he says. You've got to love that. Vampire Christians are those who hold to the heresy that says... I'd like a little bit of Christ's blood, please. But I don't care to be his student or have his character. In fact, why don't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. That's the Christian life as the American world loves to sell it. Baptists have been guilty of that through the years. I'm old enough now, going on a hundred now, that I remember a lot of things in our Baptist past that reek of vampire Christianity. A million more in 54. By the way, I don't remember that. I read about that. You know what the whole premise was? We're going to go out and we're going to get a million people baptized this year. You know what? I'm all for that. Well, now, wait a minute. I'm not all for that. If you're going to call me heretic, quote me correctly, okay? So let me finish what I'm saying here so you understand why I say I'm not all for that. Here's another thing Willard says. So far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship is clearly optional. 
But in place of Christ's plan, historical drift has substituted for make disciples. We have substituted make converts and baptize them into church membership. And he tags historical American Southern Baptists with that. One of the reasons I am so passionate about this aspect of who we are as a church is because I grew up in churches where if you made a decision for Christ and got baptized, you were in. And that was the end of it. Oh, you still needed to do the church social thing. That is, you needed to go to class and you, know, you needed to have the right language and you need not have the wrong language, although I found out pretty quickly that you could be, well, and that was negotiable for some people. Uh, it's a whole other story. Uh, but there was just really not a whole lot of substance to the Christian life once you got baptized. The problem with that is, that's not the life that Jesus offers. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, A thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life that is abundant. Now, that's watered down in English. Let me give you the Greek version of that in modern English. I have come that you may have life that will blow your mind. Does that capture your experience in the Christian life this morning? A blow your mind kind of, this is real stuff maybe I should flesh this out a little bit one of my favorite passages in scripture I say that just about every time I take you a different place I know but this is really real when I decided the Lord called me to ministry and I decided I would better do that uh, one of the first sermons that he gave me I didn't realize that's what it was at the time Uh, it was one of those times I was driving out through the countryside in the panhandle of Texas There's no trees to look at or anything like that up there. I was just driving and my head was somewhere else. And uh, I was actually kind of thinking about this passage. I probably, to be honest with you, was reading it while I was driving. And it was like heaven opened and I saw something I hadn't ever seen before. As we come to the book of Acts, you know, Jesus is crucified and resurrected. In the first part of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends back. And, and then we have the picture of the history of, or uh, snapshots of the early church as it grows. Well, I, I want to go from that picture where we were a few weeks ago about those disciples gathered up in an upper room behind locked doors and they're freaking out because Jesus has been killed and their lives are on the line and all that kind of stuff. Simon Peter had denied Jesus Christ all the disciples had fled and now they're come back together and they, they hear these reports that earlier that day the ladies had seen Jesus resurrected. But, you know, they're still there, you know, I don't know about what's going to happen now. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, something has happened with these guys. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, we find that Peter and John have been arrested because in Acts chapter 3, they go down, I think it's Acts chapter 3, anyway, you can go back and read the story, but they have gone down to this area, the public square area, around the temple site and all that, and they, God uses them to heal somebody, which immediately puts them on the radar screen of the same people who killed Jesus weeks earlier. And so they arrest them. And in Acts chapter 4, 
we have this discussion. What are we going to do with these guys? Oh, under God, wouldn't it be great if the authorities in Lumberton, Texas, started asking, what are we going to do with these Christians? One of my, another favorite verse somewhere else in the book of Acts says, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That's not the church of America today, I'm afraid. We're big on being against stuff, but not for much. So in Acts chapter 4, these guys have been arrested now, and the authorities are trying to figure out what to do with them. And so now we come, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And here's what it says. Listen closely. Now when they, that is the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and by the way, same Peter and John who had been locked in an upper room behind doors because they weren't all that bold. Something happened. And they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. (laughs) Just real people. And they defied description. And here's the verse I wanted you, or the part of the verse I wanted you to get. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let's flesh that out a second. A number of years earlier, three and a half roughly, earlier than this, these guys were going about their business, fishing, cutting up, trying to earn a living. And Jesus walks by and he says to them, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm intrigued by the fact that after that we don't find Jesus doing a whole lot of fishing instruction. Well, at least not at the level they were expecting it, I'm sure. He just says to them, what's the command in that? Follow me. That's the command. The rest of it's up to him. I'll make you fishers of men. So what is it about the following that brings them to Acts chapter 4. Well, let's flesh that out. Again, like I said, just a little bit. So they begin to follow Jesus, and what happens with them in the process of that? As they're following him, they come across this person who's blind from birth. And what does Jesus do with them? This is the audience participation part of our service today. I'll ask a question and you respond. He says... Who sinned? That's the religious people. Who, you know, they want to know, how did this happen? Because their point of reference is, somebody did something wrong and God's punishing them. So what does Jesus do? He heals them. <laughs> Just like that. Put yourself in the shoes of those disciples. What goes through your mind when here's somebody blind from birth, all of a sudden can see? Does that grab your attention? Grab their attention. Several times in Scripture, the disciples said among themselves, Who is this guy? They said that when Jesus calmed the waters out in the boat and there's a storm. Who is this guy that even the winds and the seas obey him? That's an operative question. Who is he indeed? And so they follow him. And what else do they see? Well, they find dead people who come back to life at his hand or his command even. These fishermen are witnessing this stuff, some other stuff that they witnessed. Food. (laughs) You knew I'd get the food, didn't you? Food, where there's thousands of people and no resource, except all of a sudden there's plenty of resource. 
And Jesus does a miracle and everybody eats as much as they want. And those disciples are standing there and they're taking that in. That's not all the kind of stuff they took in. They took I love this part of Jesus. I, I got to tell you, I love it. Because I'm the guy who likes to swim upstream sometimes, you know, against the flow. So now they find themselves, Jesus and these disciples, with these religious leaders, the authorities, the PhDs in theology. And Jesus takes them on, I mean head on, and smokes them in the process. You got to believe sometimes those disciples are standing off on the side looking at those religious leaders going, okay, smart boy, what do you say to that? They're real people just like we are. And these disciples stand there and they see this. But that's not all that they see. They see Jesus as they're walking through the countryside and Jesus looks over and he sees a guy throwing field, uh, seed out in his field and Jesus turns that everyday occurrence into a spiritual lesson and he teaches them about the nature of the kingdom of God. And in the process of that, he shows them he's not just a miracle worker. He's none other than the one who is the author of life and he gets it. And they start getting it and lights start coming on for them. So by the time he's crucified and resurrected and ascended, these guys have the understanding, he didn't call me to just a get out of the boat and follow him for a day or two kind of life. My life changed with him. The guy who writes this stuff in Ephesians 4, he was one of those PhDs. And God broke through to him in such a clear way that he totally changed his whole life. And he's the one who writes and says, we got to grow up. Always pressing to maturity. That's the church's role. We quote our purpose to be equipping the saints. And there's plenty of equipping there for us, plenty of stuff for us to do. So let's come back to Crestwood for a minute because we're back to our purpose stuff here. How do we do that as a church? How can I help you mature in your faith? Well, you know, we have some traditional ways of doing it. And I want to tell you right up front. I'm not saying we shouldn't have these traditional ways. I'm saying we should. But we need to look at the reality of churches across America today and figure out that the way we have traditionally done it is not doing all that great a job. We do traditional worship services like this. We come together in a big room, and guy sings for us, and we sing together, and then guy preaches, and we look at God's Word together, and then we go out. But the problem with that is that's not the best, that's not even a great way to influence people. I'm talking about the big group thing, because most of the time when the preacher hits a point like some of the ones I've hit this morning, the people sitting out there think to themselves, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear that. And we have churches full of people who have attended for decades and their faith is about this deep and you can tell it as soon as something doesn't go their way and they open their mouth because it's not about the body it's about me and I got offended by that big fat ball headed preacher 
Well, okay. But the Jesus way says, if the big fat bald headed preacher offends you, the Jesus way says, go talk to him about it. Oh my goodness. I have gotten looks from people in churches when I've said, hey, if that person offended you, you need to go talk to them. Well, I could never do that. Well, you talk to me about it. Why don't you talk to them about it? They're the ones who offended you. See, that's the Jesus way. But that's not the church way. See what I mean about being educated or being old, but not necessarily being mature? These disciples attached themselves to Jesus. That's discipleship. So what we have to do as a church is continue to find ways to attach people to Jesus. Not to a Sunday school teacher, not to a preacher, not to a music minister, worship leader. We attach to Jesus. How do you do that? I've got a couple of things for you to think about. I'm done here, okay? First of all, uh, we have to have a twofold response here. The first one is we have to continually evaluate and elevate our mechanisms. Here's what I mean by that. We've emphasized Sunday school and Baptist churches for, I don't know, 6,000 years, however long we've been around. Not that long, a couple hundred. We've emphasized Sunday school. But the problem that I see with that is that the vast majority of people go to church, any given church, don't go to Sunday school. So if they're not going to go to Sunday school, then how are we going to disciple those people? I had a discussion with some friends of mine earlier, last week or so, and, and they spot on, hit it spot on. This is done in relationship. That's why Jesus said, you guys come follow me. He didn't say, go up there to that school up there in Jerusalem and they'll teach you everything you need to know about the Christian life. We've got to attach. That's the connected community part of our vision statement. But in the process of that, we always need to be evaluating the effectiveness of what we're doing. And if it's not working, elevate it or eliminate it. Oh, he just, he just said, he said the eliminate word. <laughs> yes, I did. If it doesn't work, I don't care if we've done it for a hundred years. Don't do it. Elevate, evaluate, and then here's the last one I want you to get. We're going to always need to innovate. You know what I find? Okay, now I'm going to get real. I'm, this is why I'm going to get in trouble, okay, in this sermon with you Sunday school teachers. Why is it that we send our kids to schools or even homeschooling, private schools, public schools, whatever, we send them to school and we put them into an interactive electronic environment? Websites, video games that teach, those kind of things. Then we bring kids and adults to church and we set them in a classroom that looks like it's in a hospital somewhere and we say, sit there and I'm going to talk to you about these truths. We spend money to go to movies or even to bring them into our homes, however we choose to do them. Movies, places that spend thousands, millions of dollars on electronic special effects stuff. And we bring somebody in our church and we say, sit down there and see if you can catch what the preacher says. church is one of the most notorious entities 
that refuses to innovate. And we become irrelevant with the message of life. We've got to figure this out. i got some suggestions. I'm not even ready to trot them out there yet because I don't have, I, I don't know how we can pull them off. But these are questions we have to ask. How do we effectively disciple people? Let me tell you where it starts. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Close your eyes. Here's where it starts. In that sacred space that Brian talked to you about a little while ago. Just you and God in your chair. Answer this question. Am I further along with Christ than I was a year ago today? If the preacher went to that circle of people around me, my family, my neighbors, my co-workers, if the preacher showed up and said, tell me about so-and-so's life with Christ, what would those people around you say to describe that? These are hard words. I, I get that. This is not a comfortable at church kind of day. I get that. But you've got to understand, we're going to all each individually stand before a holy God someday, and he's going to say, what did you do with the life that I gave you? How many people have you influenced for the glory of God? If you find yourself stuck somewhere between the baptistry and the pew, Today, make the commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to get attached to Him and let Him make a difference in your life. If you don't know Him at all, you've, this first you've ever heard of anything even remotely like a relationship with God, Jesus Christ died for you, and today you could have that life. You could begin a life with Him. If you don't know how to do that, I'll just invite you to just slip out of where you are and come down. We'll talk with you, pray with you about it. That's the beginning point. But many of us have, have had the beginning point. We just got stuck somewhere. 18 months in, we stopped. And so we're 18-month-old Christians with 30 years of experience at being 18 months old. And there's a life out there. Today, right now, make a choice. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be what he called me to be. Growing up into maturity. Let's stand together as we sing.